Great. Well, thank you very much uh, to the band for leading us with that. And may I add my welcome to that of Alex's, um, particularly if you're not used to coming to church on a Sunday morning. We're really glad that you've been able to join us. Uh, carol services really are an extra workout for the knees and for the lungs, aren't they? I hope somebody warned you about that. Um, but yeah, as Alex says, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2. So if you do have a, a Bible, please open it up uh, to the, the passage that we've had read to us in Luke chapter 2. I don't know if there are any ridiculous phrases that you commonly hear, but the best one that tickles me is when someone says after a long, hard, frustrating search for an item, ah, it's always in the last place you look for it. Like, ah, oh, of course it's in the last place you look for it, because you stop looking for it when you find it. I'm really shocked when I hear people say that with a straight face. Uh, but for this year, we've, we've entitled the Christmas program, The Dawn of Hope. And we're inspired by Luke's account of the coming of Christ and the words of the old uh, carol, O Holy Night, which says at the end of the first verse, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. A thrill of hope. And I, I reckon no matter who you are this morning, we're all aware of that idea, aren't we? That thrill of hope. It's an emotion, hope, that can add a bounce to your step. It can change how you sense yourself and everything around you. But hope can also seem fleeting, hard to come by, transient, and sometimes even turns out to be false. So the question we want to ask this morning is, where can we find hope? Where can we find a true hope? that doesn't disappoint or doesn't fade away. And I think Luke has the answer for us this morning that it's in the Christmas message that we find hope. I wonder if we took to the streets of Belfast this weekend and asked people how hopeful they were coming out of 2021 and going into 2022 and why. I'm sure we'd find some Man United fans full of hope, new manager, Ralph is going to bring back the theater of dreams to Old Trafford. But some more sensibly might be hopeful for a promotion or a new job or a relationship that might progress, engagement, marriage, perhaps start a family. All great things that bring us hope. But as I reflect in the last 12 months, and I think many of us, we would say perhaps we have lost hope. Here we are, another COVID variant on the horizon or here. Increased transmission, potential surge in, July, in January, threat of lockdown, politics, government, society seems more divided on the extremes, extreme left, extreme right, widespread financial instability, soaring inflation on the horizon. The BBC Northern Ireland website this week reported that in the last year in Northern Ireland, we've had the highest number of deaths due to alcohol in the last 20 years, and the, cited the factors of loneliness, anxiety, depression. I wonder how many of those could have been described as hopeless. And perhaps even if you have been able to achieve your ambitions this year, you've made the seals, you've got the house or the relationship or hit those goals, I, I wonder if it's just not quite what you had hoped it would be. Hopes dashed or hopes that are a disappointment. Where can we find hope that is solid, 
that when we get our hands on it, it doesn't disappoint, but it fulfills what it promises. Well, I, for one, with that backdrop, I'm glad that it's Christmas time. Not just because of the food or the music or the tinsel or the gifts or the, should I say, parties or the cheese and wine, whatever. But behind it all, Christmas is really about real hope. True hope, solid hope. See, Christmas is the the good news of, of events that have happened in the past, but they change everything about my present, and they give a joyful expectation for the future. Real hope in the heart of the Christmas message. I wonder if you noticed in our reading, and just drop your eye, and notice what is the heart of the drama in Luke chapter two. Look at verse number seven. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and led him in a manger. Look again at verse number 12. And this will be a sign for you, the angel said to the shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Look down again at verse number 16. And they, the shepherds, went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Luke's answer to where we will find hope is as simple as it is profound. Hope is found in the manger. Hope is found in the manger. The baby in the manger. And I want to look at this passage in in two parts, um, sort of asking two questions I think Luke is answering for us. Firstly, how the baby came to be in the manger. And that's verses one to seven. And secondly, why is the baby in a manger? Verses 8 to 21. So firstly, how the baby came to be in the manger. Once you start to think about this question of where or or location, you'll see that Luke actually takes us to lots of different places before landing in the manger in verse number 1 and verse number 2. He starts with this wide panorama, the degree sent out by Caesar Augustus, the emperor in Rome, and then he zooms down, the governor in the great province of Syria, Galilee, Nazareth, Judea, Bethlehem is all mentioned, and then we focus down into this manger. And at one level, what Luke's doing here is what he's done the whole way through his account, and that is be a a true historian. He makes careful, ordered document of what really happened and how it fits in with the wider story of history. But Behind the historical facts, Luke wants, Luke wants us to see something more. He wants us to see that there's a design behind this all. As we saw in the video at the start of our service, Jesus' birth is actually nowhere near the start of the story. If, if you even just look at your Bible, the, the chunk that comes before is a whole lot bigger than the chunk that comes after. God had promised a, a messianic king to various people over many generations with dozens of specific prophecies all written down so that we could be certain when he came that his claims would be credible if he could fulfill all of God's promises. Like a specific key fits a specific lock. And so Luke's point in this first seven verses is to show that when Caesar Augustus decided to have this census. Sure, he wanted to raise taxes. He wanted to have a head count for an army. But actually, the empire's administration division was moving Mary and Joseph 
Joseph from the line and family of David, from Nazareth to Bethlehem, so that they could be in the right place at the right time to fulfill the promises God had made over centuries before. We read it, didn't we? Micah chapter five. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little among the clans of Judea, from you shall come forth for me one who will be the ruler of Israel. Can you imagine the shock for Mary and Joseph having to take the five-day journey from Nazareth when she's heavily pregnant to Bethlehem? And there was Joseph coming to his hometown. He didn't seem to know very many people, didn't have much wealth or influence to find them a guest room. Whatever the birth plan was, that went out the window. Mary's labor comes. Through the tears, the pain, the baby boy arrives. They do the best they can. They put him in an animal's feeding trough. But what they didn't understand was that God had matched the geography, the genealogy, all the promises that had been made were coming to be fulfilled like a lock and a key. And as we saw in the video, that, this is just a couple of them. There's dozens upon dozens of them that Jesus Christ fulfilled in his life, his death, his resurrection, which combined gives us credible evidence that we might be certain that this baby in the manger is the messianic king, the promised hope that God has sent. So the how of the baby in the manger, he is the promised messianic king. But secondly, from verse eight to 21, we see the why. For many of us, many of us verse seven, this picture of uh, baby, swaddling clothes, manger, that's kind of where the Christmas uh, story ends, sort of good for a Christmas card. But that isn't really gonna give us real hope, just the nativity scene. But how is it that these true events from the past, how did they change everything about our present and give us that joyful expectation for the future? Well, that's what Luke goes on to record for us. He records an explanation from heaven itself as to why there's a baby in the manger. And so in verse number eight, we cut to the fields surrounding the town. A bright, imposing light explodes into the dark sky. Angelic glory appears, and unsurprisingly, it strikes the local shepherds with fear. But look down at verse number 10. The shepherds say, fear not. Or the, the angels say, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news that will bring great joy for everyone. And that's what we're trying to answer. Why is it such good news that brings joy? Well, the angel goes on in verse number 11. For unto you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, the angel says, today, it's happening. A savior is born. You see, Luke and the angels, they, they want us to understand that this Christmas story centers around a baby in a manger because he is a savior. He is God's deliverer. Christmas is a rescue mission. 
But you see, that's where most of us start to struggle. We start to feel it doesn't quite make sense because we don't really think we need saving, do we? In one sense, we're happy to say in sort of polite conversation, oh, it's obvious there's something wrong with the world, isn't it? Who could deny it? Look at the news headlines. It's obvious that the world is damaged. Frozen bodies and capsized dinghies in the English Channel. World leaders regularly caught in lies, disregarding duty and morality for pragmatism and popularity. Those with deep pockets, able to abuse the vulnerable and then be protected from the consequences. It's, it's, it's easy to say there's a problem out there. And it's even easy and natural to feel that a sense of unfairness, a sense of desiring justice and judgment. It's obvious that the world is broken and something needs to be done about it. But Jesus came to say it's not just out there. The problem with the world is in here. It's in me. It's in you. I need saving. You need saving. It can't go on unpunished forever. We've had this massive, I mean massive, debate on family WhatsApp of how to do gifts this year. It just, it's been on for weeks. My highly efficient and very <clears throat> pious brother-in-law is very keen that each of us prescribe exactly the gifts we want uh, so that we don't waste money on, on needless tat or things we might not want. I tend to better like the, the slightly more romantic idea of someone putting in the thought and investigation and coming up with something golf-related for me that I would really enjoy. But you know, sometimes whenever you give people the choice of what they're going to buy you as a gift, it can be a little bit educational, perhaps. Imagine you open up your stocking on Christmas morning and you get one of these. Stocking filler, pretty standard. You think, well, nothing off it. Deodorant. But then you get anti-dandruff shampoo. Okay. And then you get mouthwash. I mean, at that stage, you're starting to think, is there something I'm missing here? Is it my, my BO, my, my dandruff, my bad breath? What is the person trying to tell me with these gifts? You see, the gift we are given can sometimes help us understand the problem that we have. And don't worry, I know a few young lads. You're going to get these afterwards. The gift we are given can sometimes help us understand the problem. So listen to the angels. How great is the problem that we have if the, the gift that God has given, what it takes is for God to give his one and only son to rescue us. How serious, how dangerous a position are we in? And perhaps really truly when we reflect on the last year, we can admit that we've hurt people. We've made mistakes in the things that we've said, even to those we claim to love. There's regret, shame, damage has been done. We have failed to love and to honor, to respect other people, and Jesus will call it sin. And the examples in the news headlines, they're almost like the wildfire version of sin. You know, if you fuel sin with enough money and opportunity and power, it's like a wildfire. But Jesus will say that the same spark, the spark that starts the wildfire is in all of us. And it's a serious problem. 
And what's worse, not only our sinful treatment of each other, but our sinful treatment of God. We've taken the fun, we've taken the friendships, the food and the family, we'll enjoy it all this Christmas, the good things that God has given, but have we ever bowed and acknowledged God as the giver of all these good gifts? Do we approach him with gratitude? The Bible says, because we don't, it's the heart of sin, that spark that lights a wildfire. And it's infected every one of our hearts. And as we trace back these sort of sources of hopelessness that we see around us this Christmas, if we follow it all back, it comes back to this same core problem of sin. And what's seriously wrong with the world out there is also seriously wrong with me in here. And until we admit it, until we feel that wrong and our need of a savior, then we'll never know the true hope of Christmas. We need God's solution. Everything else we hope in will fail to deal with this fundamental problem. So if your response to the Christmas message this morning isn't that it's great joy, then I don't think you've got this point. He has come to the manger to be the savior That's great joy. But notice in verse number 11, the angel says to the shepherds, for unto you, this bunch of shepherds. Now, a lot of people try to work out what it was to be a shepherd in the first century. I reckon there wasn't too much wrong with being a shepherd. Maybe the long hours on sociable shifts meant you missed the synagogue uh, every now and then. And the religious leaders maybe looked down at you and it was hard physical work and Maybe at the end of the week, you didn't have a whole lot in your pocket to show for it. But it was humble work for ordinary people. But it was to them that the angels came, not the priests or the powerful. The first people on God's guest list to meet the promised Messiah were the ordinary people, just like you, just like me. God wanted to be explicitly clear that the Savior is here, but he is a Savior for everyone. I'm not too sure how many babies were born in Bethlehem that evening, uh, but I'm pretty sure not too many of them were to be found in a manger. And so the angel said to the shepherds, go, it'll be a sign for you that you'll find him in the manger. I wonder how you would have reacted if you had a, got the letter from Princess, uh, sorry, Pr- Prince Will and Princess Kate to attend the official christening of Prince George with the rest of the royal family. I think you would have first thought this is a scam, maybe, sent to me by accident. I don't belong at the christening of Prince George. But maybe they convinced you. It's a mad PR strategy. They want you there for a photo op. What would you have started to think about? What am I going to wear? Do you think I could use it as an excuse for a custom suit? Put it on the credit card. I have to get a gift? What am I going to say? Would you buy or curtsy to the crib? How much more would it have been an intimidating thing for the shepherds to be told by angels in glory, the Messiah has been born, go and welcome him? How could they have approached that? But yet, baby was wrapped in swaddling cloths and he's lying in a manger that sounds familiar they too had swaddled their children with cloths and they were pretty familiar with mangers and feeding troughs 
You see, the sign of the manger was a welcome to everyone. It was an invitation to the shepherds. It's an invitation to the broken. It's an invitation to the unclean. It's not too intimidating. It's not too grand. Christ is here for the low, for the needy. It's a statement of intent that he's in a manger. He's here for all peoples, and you are welcomed. As we conclude, this Christmas, where can we find true hope that won't disappoint us or fade away? After God had arranged all the political maneuvering of the big empire so that Mary and Joseph would be moved to Bethlehem, you don't think he could have organized a guest room and a nice crib? I mean, (laughs) Joseph was a carpenter. He could have. But it's the manger in the city of David. It's exactly where the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, was meant to be. Why is the baby in the manger? Because he's the Savior of all peoples. Many of us have to be honest. When we're faced with challenges or the demands of brokenness, even in our own families or lives, we retreat, don't we? We've got our escapism, our sports fandoms, our social media scrolling, our Netflix shows. But the sign of the manger is that God has not retreated from our brokenness. But rather with relentless passion, he has laid aside his personal glory and he has pursued us to bring real hope this Christmas. Hope is here, the baby in the manger. Trust him and yes, it will be the last place you look. Let's pray as we close. Almighty God, we praise you for the thrill of hope as a weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. We thank you this morning for the sign of the manger, that your long promised for Messiah King has come, that he is a savior, Christ the Lord, and he is for all peoples. We pray that this Christmas we may know the truth of what really happened, how it changes everything in our present and the joyful expectation it gives us through Jesus Christ for the future. And we ask it for his glory. Amen.